hostility between you and the woman. Now, ladies, how many of you hate snakes? So see, it's biblical, all right? So he put hostility between the snake and the woman. There's no doubt. And he said, also between your seed and her seed. Now, what's interesting is theologically, all the theologians agree that this is the first prophetic word that the Messiah would be born of a woman. They all agree. Wow, there's going to be a seed from woman that's going to crush the head of the serpent. And we all go, it's messianic. Jesus is coming. But what's interesting is he also said to the serpent, between your seed and her seed. In other words, that the woman was going to have, you ready? Or the serpent was going to have an offspring. Now explain that. Explain that. So we all talk about the Messiah being born of woman, but what's going to be born of the serpent? And that's what we've been looking in in this series. And you can watch all the archives on faithchapelag.com. You can go to the podcast on, on uh, iTunes. You can sign up for our podcast by searching Faith Chapel O'Fallon. There's all sorts of ways to get caught up. I'm going to review this quickly and get into the stuff I have for you today. Number two, when we understand God's announcement, when he made that declaration, it gives us an insight into Satan's initial strategy. Straight, Satan didn't initiate, he reacted to what he saw God doing. And he's like, well, man, if, the, if, if I'm going to have a problem from the seed of woman, then I'm going to corrupt woman. I'm going to corrupt women. I'm going to corrupt humanity. I'm going to stand against this word from God. Number three, Satan desired to corrupt the seed of woman, the gene pool, to prevent the birth of a pure, corruption-free redeemer. That was his desire. He wants to corrupt the gene pool. Now, with that said, we get to the fourth thought, and this is where all this comes from, in case you think I'm just throwing it out there. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, we learn in the scriptures that fallen angels forcibly took women and defiled them, and the result was Nephilim spreading through the earth. They were strong, they were powerful, they were altered. How many of you have ever read in the scriptures that before the flood there were giants on the earth? Now, I went to Bible school, and I'm not saying that to brag. I'm just saying that as a piece of history. I went to Bible school. I took the first five books of the Old Testament class. We studied the Torah. We would sit around and talk the Torah. We called it the Pentateuch at the time, but we would Torah talk. And when we got to chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, this is typically what, what was said to us. Well, here's what the problem was. We've got righteous people that were descendants of Seth, We've got unrighteous people that were descendants of Cain, and they married, and the earth was becoming corrupt, so God just flooded the earth. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you have ever known a righteous person that married somebody they probably shouldn't have married? Somebody that loved God, walking with God, and they married a devilish person. And you even warned them. Don't How many of you are married to them? Let's just, I mean, let's have, <laughs> let's have a moment right now. We can deal with this. We can walk you through it, okay? Um, I was taught, don't be a missionary dater. Anybody ever grow up in the church, remember that language? Don't be a missionary dater. In other words, finding, you know, the most beautiful corrupt woman possible and then leading her to Jesus and go, yay, all right? Don't be a missionary. Now, here's what I've learned over the, over the years. I, I'm not as old as Ron Burnett, but I'm, I'm old, okay? And over the years, I've observed this. Um, you might have some people that don't love God that marry some people that, that, that do love God, but I've never noticed that when they get together and they have children that they're 20 feet tall or they're nine feet tall, or that they're genetically altered. I noticed that the house might be divided and the parents might not know how to bring them up 
but they don't typically give birth to ginormous children, okay? So why would we say in this situation in Genesis 6, well, unrighteous people got together with righteous people and boom, Goliath. Something else is going on here. Number five, Nephilim's derived from the word nephal. It's a Hebrew word. It means fallen ones, deserters, or cast out. How many of you have ever, ever been taught that at some point in the past, and we don't know when it was, that a third of the angels rebelled from the Lord and, 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 and literally were banished from the presence of God and were sent to the earth? How many of you ever heard that? Okay. This would re kind of refer to that fallen ones, those deserters, that kind of imagery. Um, the Greek word for Nephilim, number six, is gigantes. And the reason I mention that is because uh, literally Hebrew authors, Hebrew rabbis, translated from Hebrew into Greek the Old Testament 300 years before Christ. And they did that because they saw that Greek, uh, the Greek language was having had such a huge influence on the earth. And they're like, we need to write this in Greek so people know what it's talking about. And instead of using the word Nephilim, they used the word gigantes. And we read that and we go, yes, gigantic. But that's not where gigantic comes from. That's where genetic comes from, in gene, in genealogy, in genes. They went, the, the Hebrew authors that translated this said there, were, there was a corrupt genealogy before the flood. Oh, and afterward. But there was a corrupt genealogy. There was some, in other words, Satan's strategy of trying to defile the seed of woman, he must have been having some sort of success with this. By the way, gigantes is where we get the word titan. If you've ever read about titans, the, those demigods, all right, it's where we get that phrase. But thank God, number seven, Noah found favor with God. And scripture says of Noah that number one, he was righteous, and I put the Hebrew word up here for you as well, which is sadiq, and he was blameless, and I put that word up here for you, it's the word tamim. Righteous is a word of his spirituality. He was righteous, he was walking with God. Tamim is a word of his physical perfection. And are you saying that Noah was perfect? Well, I'm not saying he didn't have a pimple. But what I'm saying is this, the word tamim, 50 times in the Old Testament, it was used to refer to a sacrifice that was brought before God that had to be pure. Have you ever read in the scriptures when it says, bring an animal, but it has to be blemish free. It can't have a broken leg. It, it has to be completely this color. It can't have any blemishes. It can't have any, have you read that stuff? And the word to describe that is tamim. So when we read about the account of Noah, and there's a reason we see the genealogy of Noah in the scripture, it's because God wants us to know this lineage has been kept safe. Noah is righteous before God, but he's also blameless. His genealogy's okay. You can trust him. Number eight, the offspring of fallen angels were dealt with on a large scale by the flood. I'm gonna throw this out there for fun. Did you know that some of the hieroglyphics in, uh, in Egypt are the same drawings that we see in caves in the southwest of the United States. Do you know that? Some of the drawings, are, they're, they're the exact same. Some of them are of giants that were oppressing people. And it's interesting that when they draw these giants on the caves um, and the, on the cave walls, that they show them as having six fingers and six feet. It's interesting that when you read about giants being in Egypt, in Assyria and in Turkey, that they talk about giants having red hair. What does that mean? It means if you have red hair today, you're going down. We are taking you out. I'm telling you that right now. You have, so I hope it's colored. If it's not colored, you're gone. No, that, uh, you, when, you, when you talk about people from the land of Canaan and the Canaanites, 
there was a tremendous red hair influence. Now, why would I mention that? Because when you hear about the Pueblo Indians that had four uh, specific nations with the Pueblo Indians in the four corners of the Southwest, and they talk about the stories of the giants that were there, they talk about them being, uh, having red hair. I mean, how many were, my friend Trevor Biggs that we had here last year, he spoke to our youth, ministered, prayed over him, guy has a prophetic gift. Uh, Trevor, he lives in Newcomerstown, Ohio. Uh, Ohio. The Newcomerstown, the, the Delaware Indian word is uh, Netawatawis because it was named after Chief Netawatawis, who was a chief that, that accepted Christ and led his tribe to follow after Jesus. It's an incredible story. And uh, Trevor and I were talking about this, and I said, you've told me about the spiritual revival of, of Chief Netawatawis and his people. Can you, tell, can you speak at all to anything about giants? He goes, oh, yeah, Brad. He goes, he goes, there were huge giants in the Northeast, and they all had red hair. And he said they, they were known for being violent. They would devour people. He said there are mounds all throughout the Northeast of the United States where people believe that giant bones have been buried. How many have heard that before? How many have never heard this? How many heard, have heard of the Cahokia Mounds? Do you realize that you can take that times a couple of thousand throughout the Northeast of the United States? There's mounds throughout our country, but we don't talk about it. We don't talk about it. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but local universities actually used to excavate them until the late 18, like 1860, when the Smithsonian Institute was given the authority by Congress to keep local universities from excavating these mounds, and they put a stop to it so that there, because there were the stories of them finding skeletons of giants, and it was unexplainable with Darwinism. For Darwinism to work, you have to create isolationism where you can't have the United States connected to the rest of, none of it can be connected and nothing can go off target. So in my opinion, there was a Darwinism agenda to keep the truth from coming out. Now, if you think I'm a complete conspiracy theorist, would you mind going to the last slide that we showed at the end of the first service with Abraham Lincoln's quote, John, because I think this is fun. Look at this quote. This is from, how many of you ever heard of Abraham Lincoln? Yeah, okay. So I'm just checking. It's, it's history, and we're in the United States, so you never know. Um, as you know, he settled in northern Siberia. He oppressed people for years, and he was a ruthless man. Or he was one of the presidents that helped to bring tremendous freedom and liberate people in our nation. Is that the one you guys are remembering? Okay. He was invited to speak at Niagara Falls for a ceremony. And as he was speaking, he was standing overlooking the falls, and the crowd was there. And this is just an excerpt from his speech that I thought we might find interesting. As he said, the eyes of that species of extinct giants, whose bones fill the mounds of America, have gazed on Niagara, as ours do now. Did he say anything else about the giants? No. How come? Because at the time that he lived here, he didn't have to because there was an understanding that they had been here. But we're in 2017, and if you say this in public, people think you're crazy. How many are already starting to wonder? You even feel a little dirty just listening to it. I can't listen to this stuff. This is crazy. Uh, listen. Um, if you don't mind going back to that quote for just a second, John. The press was available when Lincoln was president. 
if this wasn't true, there would be more articles at that time talking about how Abraham Lincoln had lost his mind talking about giants. I mean, for the fun of it, could you imagine Donald Trump making this statement? Can you even imagine? Donald Trump's been invited to a presentation at Niagara, and he comes out with his little fingers. <laughs> he's got his little hands. He's like, hey, everybody, how you doing? Right? He comes out, and he, he, Donald Trump, the eyes of that species of extinct giants whose bones fill the mounds of America have gazed on Niagara as ours do now. Where does the press go with that? Where does the press go with that? Okay. I am trying to help us realize that sometimes people that have been viewed as conspiracy theorists and crazy because they believed a legend and the legend was because the truth was buried and what used to be told everybody accepted but now if you talk about it you're insane there was a worldwide flood because there were giants on the earth there was a worldwide flood because this had to be dealt with on a massive level and if you're sitting here going pb i'm waiting for you to get to some scriptures i'm going to get there but i just find this fascinating our president referred to the extinct giants that lived in the americas he lived a lot closer to that time than we do. I've got to give some credence to this. If you'll go back to the list, John, thanks. Because um, I forgot where we were. The offspring of fallen angels were dealt with on a large scale by a worldwide flood. But then, number nine, God's faithful warriors fought against the offspring of fallen angels as they each attempted to occupy the promised land. Do you remember when Joshua and Caleb led the people? What did they face? They face giants. We all know it. We know it. You're not crazy for saying they faced giants. Say it with me. They faced giants. Isn't that liberating? They did. Real giant. It wasn't metaphorical. It wasn't, you know, that they felt like giants because there were so many more of those people than the Israel. No, they faced literal giants to the point that they even said, man, we felt like grasshoppers to these people. Uh, number 10, the offspring of fallen angels are still on the earth today, futilely attempting to block the conclusion of God's final redemptive plan. So that brings us to 1218, where I'm going to try to get some stuff done. So they're still on the earth today. PB, do you really believe there are offspring of fallen angels still on the planet? Yes, I do. I do. And there's four of them in here. I'm going to call them out today. We're going to, no, 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 I, I do. And the reason I do, let's go to the verse, John. Matthew 24, 36 to 39 says, No one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Well, what was going on in the days of Noah? We know. Fallen angels, corruption, and there are people that are eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark, for crying out loud. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and it took them all away. This is how it's going to be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now think about it. You've got giants in the land and in the middle of this oppression in the middle of this wickedness you still have people eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage like that's normal this corruption's normal this wickedness is normal this oppression is normal this fallen angel taking advantage of that woman that's normal so everything's going on this in, in the meantime scripture says that in heaven God's grieved that he even made man his heart's broken because of this. And I think you could speak to in the world today, you see the oppression on the lives of people. 
people being taken advantage of, people being abused, people being oppressed, and the rest of us are eating and drinking and we think that it's normal. You know, thank God it didn't happen to me. I'm going to Starbucks, right? You know how many Christians are being beheaded on a daily basis in the Middle East right now? Losing their lives for the sake of the kingdom? Media doesn't even talk about it? Let me just go there for a second, and this isn't to slam anybody, it's just to point out the difference. If it was a group of of known transgenders that were having their heads cut off in the Middle East, I guarantee you our media would be talking about it. But they're not talking about it because it's followers of Christ. And Jesus was pretty clear that they hated me, they're going to hate you. He was pretty clear that you're light in the darkness, and darkness doesn't always like the light. Can I get an amen? I mean, there's just times that they, they just don't. So now I'm going to speak to this, and, and Jeremy Jacobs and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, and I, I think this is, I, I find this fascinating. It says that no one knows about the day or the hour. What day? When Jesus returns. And then it says, and it's something that's perplexing theologically, not even the Son. How many of you have ever read in the scriptures when Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father? I and the Father are one. If you know me, you know the Father. Come on, Thomas, don't you understand by now? I'm going to take you there. Well, I don't even know how to get there. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? You all know that whole passage. Now, with that said, if Jesus and the Father are one, if he said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, how could he also say, I don't even know when I'm coming back? I'm going to just throw out this idea. How many of you know that when Jesus, and this, this part is true, I'll ask it in the form of a question, but how many of you know that when Jesus came to the planet, he made a permanent change to who he was? Are you aware of this? In heaven, before the beginning, we have Father, Son, and Spirit working together. How many know that there was, a, there was a before the beginning? In the beginning, God created, but before he created, he was already here. He's Alpha and Omega. He's before the beginning and he's after the ending. And at some point, God said, I'm going to create time, and it begins now in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And there will be a time when he gives an end to time. And we all say that we're going to live for eternity, which doesn't mean one day after another. It means timelessness. Because God's not in time, he's above time. Okay? That's why sometimes when I lead people through deliverance, and we walk through a horrible memory that they have, and I say, hey, where was Jesus? And they see Jesus in that moment because Jesus is there because he's in all time at the same time. How do you feel like you're in Stargate this morning? Okay. Now, with that said, when Jesus came to the planet born of a, born of a woman but, but the Son of God, he put on flesh. He had never done that before. There were some, some pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus in the Scripture, at least we think so, but he had never been born of the flesh. And remember when he died and he rose and the disciples are hiding in a room and he walks into the room and they're like, ah, it's Jesus. And they're wondering if it's a ghost. And he's like, touch me. And they're like, how can I touch you? Because they obviously were in a room that the door was shut. How does somebody that's physical walk through physical to get in a room? Well, then they can't be physical. They have to be metaphysical. He walked through the matter, but when they touched him, he had matter. How does all this work? It's fascinating. Hey, look at the scars on my hands. Look at the scars on my side. I've had people say to me, hey, when you die, you're going to have the same scars that you had because Jesus had scars. Dear God, I hope not. I hope not. I've had this one since I was 16 years old. Car wreck, no seatbelt. Yeah, I, I feel like I've had it long enough. You know what I'm saying? I don't be walking through heaven and you guys go, hey, there's PB. Wah, I see him. There he is. Where's PB? There he is. I always followed that thing for years, right? I hope not. I personally think that Jesus made a permanent change, and there's something in Scripture about, I've marked you on my hands, 
that his scars are different than our scars. It wasn't a car accident, it was a sacrifice for humanity. But one thing that we can forget is that Jesus, who is God and was timeless, stepped out of timelessness into time. He went from spirit to flesh. Is it possible that when he went from spirit to flesh, he had to give up the understanding of knowing the timelessness of God because he stepped into beginning and ending? I, I do know that his body changed, and, his bo I, I, and it's permanently changed. He will never be who he was before he put on flesh and died for you. I do know that because he showed it to his disciples, and we're going to see the same thing. So is it possible that he now doesn't have the timelessness that the Father has? Yes. I, that might not be the answer, PB. You're right, it might not, but I'm throwing it out there to you that that could be a reason that he says even the Son doesn't know because especially in that moment, he stepped into time. You could put an argument that he's outside of time and he does know now. That could be a whole other possibility. But I don't want to bring up controversy. That's not the kind of guy that I am. Thank you. I appreciate it. So let me, uh, let, let's wrap this thing up. Oh, Father in heaven. Could I get 20 extra minutes? <laughs> no. All right, we don't have time for me to get, to, we don't have 20 extra minutes today. Let me, let, let me just see how quickly I can go through a couple of these. Okay, number one. What was happening before the flood? There was a corruption of the seed. I have no doubt about it. What Jesus says as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be again. What would be a goal of the, uh, uh, an, uh, an agenda of the enemy right now? To corrupt the seed. PB, what are you talking about? Look in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. I have it in the NIV 1984, but I'll say it in the King James. For you've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. Now, we say perishable and imperishable in the NIV, but through the living and enduring word of God. How many know that you are, you are brought into the kingdom of God because you believe in the incorruptible seed of the word of God that's been given to you? Remember when Jesus, John chapter 1, he says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Okay, he said in the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word was with God, theos, and the word logos was God, theos. Look at the beauty of the, of, the, of the relationship. He's like, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, but the word was God. It's showing once again that there's a Trinitarian unity here. So how do we know that we're saved? We're saved by the purity of the word of God, and if, listen, if Pastor Brad's not preaching the Word of God at Faith Chapel, then just get out of here. Just go. Don't support a house that doesn't preach the Word of God. Just don't do it. And we're growing mega churches, and some of them are growing with the Word, and they're growing with the presence, and they're growing with power, and some are just growing with one chicken soup for the soul novel after another and not giving people the word of God so that we can have true salvation. And in my opinion, in the last days, we're going to have tremendous growth of the church, but the church is going to be growing as an institution, but not necessarily growing as a body because we've corrupted the seed. Listen, I, the only way that I know that I needed Jesus is because the Bible tells me so. I need Jesus. I need to surrender. We need to make sure that we're handling the word of God with great care. Look at Matthew 3, 7. Jesus said, when he, uh, or it says that when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming uh, to see or to, to where he was baptizing, 
he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now, I just use this, and I believe it's more of a word picture. I'm not saying it's literal, but I think it's interesting that we have a corruption of the seed in the Old Testament. We all know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not teaching the word of God when Jesus was here. Can I get an amen? They were so focused on religion, they were not bringing people into freedom, and they literally referred to as a brood of vipers, and the word brood, you know what it means? Offspring. So literally, they're calling them out that the religious teachers were the offspring of Satan. Now, how, how remarkable, but Pastor Brad, could they have been Nephilim? Sure, they could have. But they were operating with the same agenda in that they were corrupting the seed. Let's go to the next one, number two. They strive to kill you. What did Nephilim do? They strive to kill you. Have you ever read John 10, 10? The thief comes only to do what? Still kill and destroy, but I've come that they may give, have life and have it to the full. I want you to know contextually, Jesus was saying that there were false shepherds that were trying to hurt his sheep. And ultimately, the greatest false shepherd of all is Satan himself. But he uses false shepherds that speak a false message. And Jesus said, but they run from him. But when they hear my message, they come to me because they know I'm a good shepherd. And a good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. False shepherd wants to kill him. A good shepherd will die for him. That's completely different. We are in the day when Paul told Timothy, but mark yourself, in the last times, people are going to gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They're going to turn away from the truth and turn aside to wickedness. We are in that day. We don't want to be taught the truth of God's word anymore. We actually prefer our culture. God forgive us. God cleanse us. I don't need to know what the culture says about me. I don't need to know what the world says about me. I don't need to know what media says about me. I need to know what God says about me. And I need to know what God's wanting to do in my life. I need to gather people around me that will actually speak, challenge, rebuke, disciple, convict me, and help me to be the man of God that God's called me to be. We don't just need a soft message. We need a pure message. Can I? Yeah, okay. Number three. You're going to love this. We're almost done. They'll aggressively promote the homosexual agenda. Now, before you get mad at me, let me give you context. In Genesis 6, we have fallen angels shedding their habitation and corrupting a genealogy, corrupting humanity, hurting women. Peter, who was the loudest apostle, everybody knows that about him, whether you go to church or not, everybody knows that Peter speaks up, right? He always talks. In his second letter to the church, and then also Jude, in his letter to the church, and Jude was the youngest brother of Jesus, okay, they both said in their letter, that just like the fallen angels were judged for the way they did what should not be done to humanity, the people of Sodom of Gomorrah will, were judged for doing what should not be done within humanity. They said it. They put it at the same level, which leads to the question, and please don't misunderstand it. Pastor Brad, are you saying that you don't love people that, that are walking this and in this... Are you kidding me? We love and want everybody to know the king. It's possible to say that something's wrong and still love someone. Did you know that? Hey, America, it's okay to say something's wrong and we still love you. Now, I know our culture says we can't do that anymore. 
You, how, how dare you say that that's wrong? No, it's okay. Because if, we, if we're not willing to call it out, we can't give them a guidance to the truth. And it's the truth that sets us free. One of the first commands of Scripture was this. You remember this? Be fruitful and multiply. It, nobody's done it like the Jacobs and the Grimshaws and the Skibos around here. Bless you guys. Thanks for, thanks for carrying the load for the rest of us. We appreciate that, okay? Be fruitful and multiply. Homosexual relationship can adopt, but they can't multiply. I'm going to go to the last one and I'm done. I just find this intriguing. Nephilim are preparing for the rule of the Antichrist. And uh, let's, just, let's just put it up there. They don't need a lot of background. Just Daniel chapter 2. If you've ever read Daniel, you know he's prophetic. And he ministered in a culture that was <laughs> almost virtually demonic. Nebuchadnezzar was the most wicked king of his day. Horribly wicked. And Daniel served him. It's amazing. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He had a few. He had a dream. And in his dream, he saw a huge statue reach to the sky. And he said, this is what I saw. And Daniel said, well, let me interpret it for you. I'll do that. He said, hey, king, that, what was the head made of? Do you remember in the dream? It was gold. He said, king, that's you. It's Babylon. It, it was that first strong, mighty, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was expansive, man. He had power. He's like, that, I, you know Nebuchadnezzar had to love that part of the interpretation. You better believe that's me. I'm at the top of this thing, right? And it, but then the, the chest was silver. Now, here's what's interesting. Daniel called out what the head was. It's you, king. The rest of us have been trying to interpret the rest of it for years. And most people say that, that the chest of silver was the Persian Empire, because that became the next strong empire. Persia, you, you all, especially the veterans, you know. We're talking Iraq, Afghanistan, Iran, that area of the world, the Persian Empire. Um, and that would be the, the area of silver and that chest area. Uh, the belly in the midsection was made of bronze. And a lot of people said that was the, the, the empire of Greece that was establishing and becoming so strong. And then you've got uh, legs. If I remember right, they were iron. And people said that was the Roman Empire. Now, do we know if they're right or not? No, we don't know if they're right. That's one of the beauties of the kingdom of heaven. There's so much that we think that we know that we really don't know. Okay? So were they, are they right about these things? We don't know. But what we do know is this. The head was Nebuchadnezzar. It's Babylon. And it seems like all the theologians agree that the final empire, when it talks about the feet, the feet are partly clay and partly iron. And everybody seems to say that no matter how the rest of this really works out, that the feet are the, the empire of the Antichrist. It's the final empire, and Jesus is going to come and deal with that. So the verse I'm going to share with you, and I use the King James Version because, one, we dedicated Joshua Silverstein today, and the King James is David's favorite translation. So I used it for him. And number two, it actually spells it out the most accurately as Daniel was interpreting for the king. Now, just follow this. And I know there's some old English here, but just roll with it. Whereas thou sawest feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, for there shall be in it the strength of iron, for as much as thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay. 
And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, notice, the kingdom will be partly strong but partly broken. Now, how's the kingdom of the Antichrist partly broken? It's supposed to be so strong. Whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, what does that say? They shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave to one another as iron is not mixed with clay. Daniel prophesied that the final kingdom will be a kingdom of two groups that actually don't go together. They'll be divided. They won't cleave to one another. The word cleave here, by the way, is the word typically used to refer to marriage. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The final kingdom of the Antichrist is a kingdom where somebody mingles themselves with the seed of men. Now, I, who are they? Well, I'll tell you this much. They're definitely not men. Or the scripture would say, and whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, the men mingled themselves with the seed of men. It doesn't say that. It says that they did. What is it, PB? In my opinion, it's all the way back to Genesis 3.15. That we are going to see that Jesus not only crushed the head of the serpent when he went to the cross and he rose again and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, but Jesus, the offspring of woman, he's coming back. He's putting his feet on the Mount of Olives. He's destroying the Antichrist and his kingdom. And he is stepping to Jerusalem where he shall reign as king of kings and lord of lords. Amen. 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 Now, I've got a lot more and we'll talk about it next week. We'll just we'll stop for here. Thanks for giving me extra time so we could get to this place. Um, it's pretty, isn't this remarkable? It's just remarkable. So we're going to turn the web stream off, Blake. I just bless our web stream. We love you guys. And you're looking good today. Every single one of you are looking good. So God bless you. And uh, thanks for tuning in and joining us.